Welcome to 101.1 FM WBRULP, WFOOLP, WVVXLP, Providence. And you're listening to the Out of Pocket Podcast. My name is Drew Vonnen. And I'm Alejandro Jackson. Uh, this is the Out of Pocket Podcast, where we occasionally pull conversation topics out of our pocket. And occasionally go out of pocket. Today we're going to be talking about one of our favorite subjects, uh, comic books, and specifically the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard, but it is November 2021, and the movie Eternals just came out. Yeah, so we actually went to go watch Eternals, uh, I want to say last Thursday, uh, in theaters, and so we just wanted to talk a little bit about that today. And a little bit more about how Eternals fits into the MCU as a whole, and maybe a little bit more about the MCU in general. So without further ado, let's get started. So, what did you think about the movie? I guess that's where we should start. Yeah, mm, I know when we walked out of the theater, I said, you know, like solid A minus in my tier list including S tier but the more I thought about it the more it just started screaming wasted potential to me uh yeah I definitely think so I think they like I said um when we were talking about this they definitely aimed to have a lot more depth to the movie than they actually did have um I feel like obviously there were a lot of characters that they had to balance and they only have such a uh limited amount of time I'd say but um, there was just there felt like there was something missing at the end of the day. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. Uh, not to spoil too much, but essentially the plot of the movie revolved around these figures, uh, these immortal figures called the Eternals, and um, the whole premise is the Eternals showed up on Earth far before pretty much far before any of the events of the MCU. They showed up in like ancient mesopotamia or something and um they've sort of been silently guarding earth against the deviants ever since that time um and the eternals as a group are pretty much uh what there's cersei played by Gemma chan there is icarus played by that guy who looks like sebastian stan richard madden <laughs> there's um what uh kumail nanjani yeah, Kamel Nanjiani playing um, Kingo, uh, Fastos. Yes, Fastos. Maca- uh, Makari. Makari. Uh, Sprite. And Druig. And Druig. And um, Salma Hayek. Uh, Ajak. Ajak. Uh, so that's the Eternals. Um, <laughs> if you couldn't already tell, I think the fact that they tried to have this many main characters alone and... Even, like, especially because we have never seen these characters before, um, it it very much felt like the film was playing with fire. Like, I certainly respect Eternals a lot more than a film like Captain Marvel, which was pretty much the definition of not taking any cinematic risk whatsoever. Uh, so I definitely respect Eternals, um, that they tried to tackle such a large challenge introducing an entirely new superhero team without any previous context to go off of for them. But obviously just trying to fit that into a reasonable runtime for a movie is an incredibly large challenge. And as much as I hate to say it, the movie just didn't pull it off. Definitely. I feel like, um, as we said, there were a lot of characters to balance and I think another one of my issues is that and I remember thinking this during the movie is that the movie totally could have stood alone as its own superhero movie uh, with no affiliation to Marvel uh, or the comics and in a in a universe dubbed the Marvel Cinematic Universe where everything's supposed to be connected I unfortunately think that's a problem um, because even though you could, even though the movie could stand alone, the whole purpose of these movies is that they're connected and that you uh, notice connections between them and that you uh, basically can build this lore off of, of uh, from one movie to another. And essentially, when watching Eternals, they would make they made about one, maybe two, three references to uh, 
uh, other characters or other events that occurred in the MCU. But besides that, it fully stood alone. And I feel like one crucial aspect that it missed out was highlighting or talking about, I guess, sort of what the Eternals were doing uh, during events that took place in the MCU. So obviously, um, the, with, can't say too much without getting into spoilers about the plot. Um, but if from knowing the plot, you can kind of pick out a few uh, sort of plot holes um, that the Eternal Space, uh, due to the, I guess, uh, the, if you look at essentially what their mission is, there have been events in the MCU which sort of, I guess, contradict uh, what they, they should have been doing on their mission um, in the sense of intervening yeah, and whatnot. Definitely. And, um, and so they never, they never sort of covered like, oh, what they thought about this or where they mm-hmm. were during this or like, so um, yeah, they kind of skip over a lot in that regard. Agreed there. And I, even, I feel like their rationale for not interfering with Thanos is pretty thin. It's just the whole, like, we were advised not to interfere. You know, it it doesn't really... Like, yes, it is a reason, and honestly, it is probably the only valid reason the writers could give, because how else could you... How else could you cover for the fact that the Eternals did not fight the biggest threat that the universe has ever faced up till this point? Um... And I agree what you were saying there. I feel like the Eternals focused a lot on kind of how they played into human history, but not necessarily the MCU's like interconnected history. And sort of touching on that point, uh, I kind of want to segue into one of the big themes in the Eternals. Uh, so without spoiling too much about the plot, um, the final battle... Uh, pretty much sees uh, our main character Cersei make a huge decision with uh, enormous consequences essentially going against her mission and prioritizing the human race over that and a lot of the rationale behind it was very much like oh humans are special like oh <laughs> even though they exist in a universe of, at least in the MCU, countless other alien planets with just as populated, civilized, I mean, some some civilizations are even more populated and civilized, uh, but, you know, the, the Eternals, or at least Cersei, makes this incredible sacrifice just for humanity. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. So one of the big themes uh, about the movie, as Dhruv said, was sort of essentially what boils down to the importance of humanity and how important humanity is. Um, and so it, it made me question sort of how, for lack of a better word, narcissistic humans are uh, towards our own race, how because we are the most intelligent life forms that we know of uh, as of right now, we sort of see ourselves as as this priority as as this important species among others um and so the movie kind of kind of it covers the topic and then sort of leans towards the argument that because humans are so special because uh we've we've created so many things in the time that we spent on this earth that um that we deserve to stay here essentially that we deserve to to i guess live until extinction even though then again the movie sort of i guess kind of even covers that we i guess shouldn't become extinct uh through the actions of cersei as the roof said um and then the counter argument to that is why not give another life form who could potentially be as smart or as creative as capable as human to have a chance to uh, essentially rise up and have their own sort of golden age. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, the, the main theme of the movie is like, are, do humans deserve to, uh, to I guess, have, have, have their time here on this earth expired? Have they spent long enough, t- long enough time on this earth? And should we let another sort of life form uh, sprout and have their time to grow and develop? Or should humans deserve to stay here essentially permanently 
because of what we've created in the last, uh, in the last couple thousand yeah, years. Couple thousand years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it definitely is really wild. Uh, and before we go on further, uh, I just wanted to add a little disclaimer. Like, we have been dunking on the movie, but one really positive aspect of the movie, to me at least, was the direction. Like, as we already know, the director is an Academy Award-winning, like, superstar. Chloe Zhao is popping off recently. And the the visuals are just, like, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. They're filming on set on these absolutely scenic, like, vistas. Um, and especially because we watched it in IMAX, uh, any of those scenes with... Um, the main eternal, uh, what's his name? Icarus. No, not not or not the eternal, the celestial. Um, oh man, Erishim. Yeah, Erishim. Any scene? Yeah, these the the celestials. They they take a much bigger role in Eternals than we ever saw them in previous MCU uh, features. Uh, most notably, like one cut scene in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, they're very clearly like beings to be contended with they are literally the size of a planet and anytime you see uh the these scenes where the eternals are juxtaposed against erishim it's just absolutely like stunning the the sheer magnitude of this being uh and it shows even more on uh an imax aspect ratio so the mo the movie, at least to me, was very visually pleasing. I thought the set design and the costumes were also very solid. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that that's the the best part of the movie for me. Uh, the rest, as we were talking about, the writing, the characterization, that all started taking a hit. Um, and you were mentioning that its connections to the MCU as a as a whole. I actually think that they did a better job connecting Eternals to the next phase of the MCU rather than talking about their relationship to the past MCU project. And to be fair, the movie had a 2 hour 40 minute runtime. We can't they couldn't have possibly crammed everything we were expecting of such a large project into this movie. Honestly, I think it might have even benefited from being a TV show. Like, it, it definitely could have benefited from a longer runtime where each character got a lot more, like, at genuine character moments instead of the movie glossing over and being like, oh, you didn't see this coming? Like, this character is in love with this character or this character has just been chilling for the last couple hundred years and we don't know what they've been up to, but we're just going to gloss over that and continue with the plot. I, I mean, from, from, a, from a, just a purely a screen time perspective, every character would have gotten at least double or triple what they got from this movie if they decided to release it as a TV show. But understandably, I think people are a little fatigued of uh, MCU TV shows being a large part of where the project is headed. Because before, you could show up to theaters once or twice a year. and got to the point where you could even show up to a theater four times a year. But you were still caught up with the MCU. Mm -hmm. Now it's practically necessary to have a Disney Plus account to keep up and know what's happening. And what before shang chi it was black widow and then before that it was quarantine so no movies actually came out so i could see why they decided to release it as a movie but i can't say i agreed with the fact that they tried to tackle such an ambitious project with such a limited runtime yeah so uh adding on to that i feel like the decision to make it a movie you uh you sort of you win some and you lose some. You win some in the sense of, as you were saying, the cinematography behind the movie, the, the sort of the scale of the scenes, 
uh, as you were saying with Erisham, just the grand scale of seeing this this being floating in space. I know that was a concern of a lot of uh, comic book fans, whether they would truly do justice to sort of how grand these beings are supposed to seem from the comics to the film adaptation. Um, and sort of in a movie, I feel like you get a lot more of that grandeur in the sense of the scenes and cinematography, but definitely if it were stretched out over the course of sort of hour-long episodes in a TV series, it would definitely benefit from being able to develop the characters more uh, and, and sort of not have to rush certain reasons as to why the plot moves forward. Uh, I know that sort of one of the villains in, uh, one of the villains who is a deviant in the movie uh, sort of, I would felt myself very disappointed in what they did with his character by the end of the movie. Uh, he kind of appeared um, and began to um, act out toward, uh, against the Eternals because of his philosophy of sort of, yeah, that they're... And he was genuinely menacing in yeah. the earlier scenes of the movie. It, it definitely seemed like it was shaping up to be something much more epic than it actually ends yeah. up being. Yeah, and, and, and then sort of they kind of ended up doing nothing with this character, unfortunately. Um, it seemed sort of at the end of the movie that um, figuring out how to phrase this without spoiling anything, but just that uh, what they chose to do with this character was more so to be able to just focus on another plot point um, as opposed to sort of conclude the plot point and, and bring it to a sort of satisfying finish um and so i'm sort of disappointed in, in the ways in which his character went but um but i guess transitioning into the whole talk about tv shows is something i wanted to talk about next um which is basically the importance of tv shows in the mcu and how we were talking about how <laughs> having uh movies like two or three times a year um although it you don't like for example you don't need to be subscribed to a service for that um it is a very slow process i mean we like one mcu saga concluded um basically over the span of most of our lives over the majority yeah, of most of our lives yeah that's absolutely crazy to think about the first iron man movie came out when i was like what 6 and yeah, 2008 so we were, yeah. 2000, yeah 2008 so we yeah or or maybe 5 at that point and Infinity War and Endgame happened. Endgame happened when I was years later. like a junior. Eleven years later, and so I guess to an extent, yes, I do agree that it is sort of a little bit unfair that for for Disney and for Marvel to require a subscription service to sort of keep up with what's going on with the story. And they sort of talked about how they didn't want that to be the case, and how they wanted to make the TV shows sort of supplemental but not mandatory. Although I kind of disagree with that because I think that they the, the are TV supplemental yeah. and definitely kind of mandatory. And so I do think that it, it is an issue for people who like may, may not be able to afford a subscription service. Uh, they can only treat themselves to going out to the movies two or three times a year like we talked about. However, at the same time, there you can make the argument that without these TV shows, we're going to spend another decade or two just trying to complete another sort of plot point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, another uh, another saga, um, and it'll end up taking, like I said, 11, oh, definitely. 15 years. Especially because the MCU has spiraled so like, out of control. That, that puts it in a negative light. But it's, it's just a burgeoning project at this point. We started at films with two, three solo heroes, then we got Avengers, and we got a little... By the time we hit Infinity War, we had, like, a solid cast yeah, of heroes. Dozens of characters. De yeah, definitely. And and many of them had their own solo projects. Uh, but we're getting to the point... Uh, I, I guess, if we're starting at the very beginning, Iron Man... Like, you have to understand that the cinematic landscape in 2008 was far different than it is now mm -hmm. the the best superhero media at least in my opinion that had come out in recent years before then were probably the sam raimi spider-man movies and 
like Fantastic Four was entertaining, but in retrospect, <laughs> they weren't that great. X Men, uh, you can make a good case for X Men. The X- first few X Men movies were. Yeah, X Men movies kind of hit. Uh, <laughs> um, X Men movies were good. Blade, yes, pretty solid. Um, but then if you go before that, you'd get, be getting like, what the the Keaton Batman movies. Yeah. Uh, Movie, I feel like superhero movies to back then were a lot more sort of for either action or for, I guess, mm-hmm. jokes more than anything and, else. And they're also very one-off. None of them, like, really built off of each, built other. Off each other in the way that the comics did. Um, yeah, and, and so, and, and also they were all very focused on the comics' biggest IPs. Uh, Marvel would only touch... Spider-Man and the X-Men on the big screen mm-hmm. because figures like Iron Man, Captain America, they were seen pretty much like very outdated by people who weren't re- necessarily comic book fans mm-hmm. and they also weren't popular characters. Like not many people knew who Iron Man was outside of like a Black Sabbath song mm-hmm. um un- before 2008. Uh so, but but the huge, unprecedented success of 2008's Iron Man, like, made kind of made it seem possible that they could build a universe on the screen on the big screen, mm-hmm. and I it, it's actually funny because DC built a huge universe of their sort of animated characters between like the Justice League and the Batman TV shows, um, but. That being said, they were TV shows. They weren't movies. And it, it was also in a different medium. It was animated. And it's very easy, or, or at least in my eyes, it's probably an easier transition from comic books to animation than from comic books to live a, uh, live adaptations. Oh, without a doubt. You can definitely, I guess, base yourself off the comic book panels and be able to animate them. Because in a way, animation is just drawing Mm-hmm. A, uh, drawing everything between the yeah, panels, pretty yeah, much. Drawing a bunch of panels and just pl- you know rapidly switching through them. We're getting to the movies. Like you have so many questions. Like how do we adapt this to modern audiences? How do we make the costumes seem not corny? Like how how do we make this character appealing? Like do we change parts of him from the comics? Do we keep other parts the same? Um, but all that aside, uh, Iron Man definitely changed the game when it came to superhero movies and you get forward and forward and forward until Infinity War and Endgame. And now we're entering an era of the MCU where things are starting to get a little too large, um, at least in terms of, I think, what anyone could have possibly envisioned back, back in the day. Like, I don't think I could have ever foreseen characters like Blade being incorporated into a Marvel cinematic or Blade's a bad example because he already had um, he already had a movie but Mm -hmm. Doctor Strange like who could have possibly foreseen characters like Strange or hmm? Ant-Man Ant-Man yeah and especially in like the comic books Ant-Man at least in the original Avengers is like he's Hank Pym, mm-hmm. and it, it's like a relatively obscure character. Um, but we're getting to the point where I, I think audiences are going to undergo event fatigue, especially with the TV shows. Because yes, the TV shows accelerate the process of the storytelling, so we can keep a saga running at the same pace without having to stop every couple of months for a movie just to explain who all these new characters are mm-hmm. but at the same point um, the comics underwent this problem but befo- because the comics were stretched out over decades they didn't run into this problem really until the 80s um, but pretty much once the one, once you had a sufficiently large enough cast of characters Marvel and DC were like you know what would be cool if we had this massive like event where all of them come together and we get to see them all interact and for marvel i think the 
the obvious one that comes to mind for me at least is um the infinity war run that the comics were based on and for dc you had um a similar storylines in like the crisis um there's you know there's so many crisis storylines flashpoint crisis on infinite earths crisis on like two earths like just a lot um and that that's part of the problem like audiences literally underwent event fatigue because marvel and dc were like that successful let's do it again and then the time between the events got shorter and shorter until it was just like it just became too much um but yeah (laughs) going and this is going to be quite the transition so going back to the eternals um I think its place in the MCU right now remains to be seen. Because uh, we already saw, without trying to spoil anything, we already saw one personal connection between an Eternal and an upcoming figure who's going to carry his own TV show? Movie? We don't know yet. <laughs> we don't know yet. <laughs> but uh, e- either way... Um, we know that the Eternals are going to be connected, um, maybe even to the Guardians of the Galaxy. Like it's, it's really hard to tell. I think some some of the Eternals, at least, are going to be involved involved in the very galactic cosmic side of the MCU, where the Guardians and all the aliens reside, and another portion of them are going to be involved with the events back on Earth. Um, and one, one unrelated note about the movie that I personally found, um, I thought they did well was the, frankly, the diversity, like, yes, it's a very, um, yeah, it's obviously talked about a lot and I don't think any movie or or any MCU movie at least handled this sort of diversity and like racial and uh, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity diversity better than Black Panther, uh, just purely because, I mean, it, it, it kind of speaks for itself. Black Panther is just an S-tier Marvel movie. Um, but I thought the Eternals handled um, diversity pretty well. Uh, yeah, it's always such a hard topic to talk about, Um because some things that people found enjoyable, other people might have found offensive. I personally thought that Kingo becoming a Bollywood star and making all these Bollywood references and literally saying Dishum as he like shot a deviant, I found that hilarious because uh, being co- coming from that Indian background, um, it really makes you feel seen to have someone like you up there on the screen, not in a corny or token or stereotypically derived way, but in a genuine, at least it seems like it came from a genuine place. And another point of diversity in The Eternals was it is the first MCU film to feature an on-screen gay couple with a kid and they do kiss on screen like it's it's not alluded to it's not like oh they did it off screen it's very much present in the in the movie itself uh so i'm very glad that they didn't decide to shy away um from this or even act like like it was anything out of the ordinary pretty much I, I think that's really good. They pretty much normalize, like, real humans. Like, th- th- these are real stories in an MCU movie um, that, you know, just haven't been shown up till this point uh, in the MCU. So uh, I thought they handled that pretty well. Um, anything you want to say? I just think, yeah, like you said, they handled it really well. And I think they handled it really well because it wasn't forced. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like like one of those none of these moments that you've been speaking about have felt like 
one of those moments that were forcibly inserted into the film to sort of cover the basis of like looking at you and game girl power moment yeah and so so yes uh, as opposed to other moments in the mcu where it just feels forced there's certain moments that just feel like they were trying too hard to to make people feel included i think at the end of the day those sort of forced moments kind of do more damage than good um because they just come off as so fake and so uh sort of against what these communities actually go through on a day-to-day basis their experiences and whatnot so i yeah i do think the diversity um aspect of the movie was really well carried out i think that it was really well incorporated and definitely felt really natural um as i said agree agree so yeah uh we've talked about um the Eternals a lot at this point and at least in my view I'd say B plus for an MCU project yeah I'd agree um but that's not the only movie we watched together recently we also watched uh Venom's Let There Be Carnage and I feel that now that we've gotten a month between us and the release of that movie I feel like spoilers are a little more acceptable uh, especially if you pay attention to this kind of thing. Yeah. But um, so spoiler warning. But we will sort of be a little bit more in depth about the events of the movie, the plot, and what goes on, and what this means for the future. Yep. So um, the biggest shock, and I know you and I freaked out Definitely. in theaters when yeah. we saw this, but in the end credit scene of Venom, uh, there's sort of an allusion to the fact that Venom is part of this larger hive mind of symbiotes. That's something the comics has been tackling for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, Venom gets dragged from his little own Sony universe directly into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And for those of you who are sort of unfamiliar with the background of what this means, basically... um, When Marvel and the comic book industry as a whole imploded in the 90s, Marvel sold off all their film rights to stay solvent, and various characters went to various different um, companies. companies. Uh, And among those, Spider-Man and all of his associated characters went to Sony. And that's why Sony was able to do um, the Sam Raimi movies and and why they were able to do the Andrew Andrew Garfield Garfield movies. But once the MCU started, Marvel worked out a deal with Sony to get Spider-Man in the MCU. Um, And I'm not too familiar with the exact terms, but it pretty much meant Tom Holland could be Spider-Man in the MCU, and uh, Marvel would have to split the profits between them and Sony. And Sony would uh, get to produce their own Sony-verse of Spider-Man spinoff movies, including, as we've seen, two Venom movies. The upcoming Morbius movie. The upcoming Morbius movie. And given the success of the two Venom movies, probably, like, they have other projects cooking as we speak. Yes, definitely. Um, but this pretty... And there was also that scare in 2018? When, when did Far From Home come out? 19. 2019. There was a little scare in 2019 that... Sony wasn't going to renew their contract with Marvel and Spider-Man in the MCU. Tom Holland's story was just going to stop after Far From Home, which would have been incredibly disappointing and, um, you know, just not at all uh, resolving that character's personal story arc. Um, So obviously fans and the, the studios and Tom Holland himself are very happy that the deal continued in good faith. And, um, now we get to see Spider-Man No Way Home coming out uh, next month, which I personally am very excited yes, for. Beyond excited. Uh, for. <laughs> beyond excited. Um, and, uh, and, and I know like you and I have pretty much both said Spider-Man is our favorite superhero. Yes, definitely. Um, I, I know I've been a huge fan since uh, watching the first Tobey Maguire movies back in the day. Um, Yeah, I think there's a relatability aspect to Spider-Man's character that that sort of 
you don't get in other superheroes and because I, I think and this is the basis of Marvel this is what Stan Lee has, has claimed goes behind uh, MCU comic book characters and that's a sense of uh, for, like a sense of relatability that these characters struggle from everyday problems just like the rest of us do in the comics uh, and they didn't really touch upon this in the MCU but Tony Stark suffers from alcoholism which is something that probably millions of people suffer mm-hmm. from they uh, they touched upon day. it in Iron Man too. Okay, yeah, in Iron Man too, they briefly yeah, touched upon it, um, but also and then you know in the MCU, uh, as you as you've as you've expressed to me before, you really like how they covered Iron Man's PTSD from from having to essentially fight a war in New York for a day against almost die almost, after yeah. carrying a nuke. Yeah, against against aliens, which prior to that day he had never thought to be you know, a thing before, like, alien life is not something that that we th- would think would just show up one day on Earth to just attack us. I mean, obviously, like, I feel like we do sort of, hi- you know, hypothesize these things, hi- like, oh, hypothetically, this may happen. But, like, until it actually happens, you sort of don't really, like, ever expect that just one day uh, planet Earth will get attacked. So, like I said, the MCU sort of handles these characters with a sense of relatability that you can relate to their struggles. And I think... Peter Parker as a character, being a teenager who has not only superhero responsibilities but also school, uh, social life. Uh, you know, his aunt May, his aunt, his, uh, his girlfriend, girlfriend MJ or Gwen yeah. Stacy. Yeah. You know, so definitely with with Spider Man, there's definitely a sense of relatability, and that's what's always made him my favorite character. And also, just as you said, as we talked about earlier, the Sam Raimi movies were essentially. Some of the first like serious good superhero movies, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, yeah, at I, least during our lifetime. During our and lifetime. also some of the first movies I ever watched. Same, like, yeah. I swear it was like I progressed from like Finding Nemo to Shark Tales, <laughs> um, to like the 1970s Superman to like Spider Man, and those were like pretty much the first four movies I ever remember watching. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're talking about sort of, I guess, the Spider-Man No Way Home and sort of where that's going, how we're excited for that. Uh, and, and now, as we were talking about earlier with Venom being pulled into the MCU, uh, Venom notably being one of Spider-Man's arguably most iconic villains, um, is now, now there's a, has a very uh, high chance of interacting with Spider-Man in the MCU in a movie on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably some of the or one of the best uh, I guess adaptations we've seen Venom in uh, prior. I really like how Sony agreed. Agreed. Spider Man Three's Venom was very cringe inducing, yes. uh, and that movie suffered from its own problems, kind of similar to Eternals. It was just trying trying to cram way too much yeah, into way into too little. Bit, yeah. And so, I guess notably one of the most exciting things that that uh, you mentioned earlier was. The idea that symbiotes have a connected hive mind over multiverses. And if Marvel has been approaching each of these, uh, I guess, cinematic stints, so the Sam Raimi universe, the Andrew Garfield universe, as their own universes, then essentially by explaining everything with a a multiversal hive mind, which isn't exactly that much far of a stretch. I mean, it's accurate to the comics, as we've talked about. They can sort of, I guess, cut out a lot of, the having to explain like how Sony's Venom knows Spider-Man because they can just rationalize it with the fact that well I mean arguable Sam Raimi's Sam Raimi's mm-hmm. movies are Sony movies but um, basically how the 2007 Venom knows Spider-Man is through this hive mind so mm-hmm. then we get to see cool interactions later on between Venom and Peter Parker I know when we'd first watched uh, Let There Be Carnage, all we'd gotten about uh, No Way Home was that big teaser t- trailer. But now that a uh, more lengthened trailer has come out, we've actually seen um, back in that teaser trailer, it was still like sort of, I guess, I mean, even in while this movie was in production, there was a lot of rumors like, oh, what's the title going to be, you know? Um, oh, there's been rumors that, like, other Spider-Man villains are on set. Is this true? 
uh, you know, all sorts of speculation. But we didn't really know until you saw Doc Ock and the Green Goblin in that teaser trailer. And Doc Ock, like, says, hello, Peter. Um, but as we've seen in the more recent trailer, Doc Ock actually recognizes that the Peter Parker that he thought was his own is actually Tom Holland. And he literally says, you're, you're not Peter. Um, and so this, this, this gets sort of interesting because um, I guess as we were sort of assuming before um, all these villains, it, it would have been hard to explain how all these villains know Spider-Man um, or, or have, have beef with Tom Holland's Spider-Man even though they come from disparate universes. And as we're seeing, uh, that's not true. Um, it, it appears that they are able to delineate between which Spider-Man is their own, except for, and, and the only contradiction we've seen so far, is Venom. And I think the only logical explanation would be that Venom has access to the Venom from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man's hive mind memories, um, because otherwise he wouldn't know who Peter Parker is. Um, but going beyond Venom, we are going to be seeing a lot of familiar faces uh, in the Spider-Man movie. Um, it, it looks like, uh, obviously, we're going to be seeing Green Goblin, Sandman, uh, the Lizard, Electro, the Lizard, Electro, and Doc Ock. And Doc Ock. Those are so, yeah, pr pretty much very iconic Spider-Man villain, uh, and Venom, obviously, uh, very iconic Spider-Man villains, a lot of them being members of the Sinister Six. Um, I think we're only missing, like, Scorpion and Rhino. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's very much, obviously, it's an absolute delight to see the Sinister Six on the big screen. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it sort of begs the question, uh, like, and we're getting into, we're delving into basically plot theorizing, um, but I, I was thinking, as I was watching the trailer, um, it looks like a lot of this movie's burdens are going to be sitting on Peter Parker's shoulders. Um, as we saw him, when we saw him last, he got his secret identity exposed by J. Jonah Jameson in the Daily Bugle. And that was a really nice touch, uh, recasting J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah. He, he just, he's such an iconic JJJ. Mm -hmm. Like, I could see nobody else in the role. Yeah. Um, and it was also pretty cool how they updated it from a newspaper to sort of a podcast TV show, mm -hmm. uh, journalistic style. Uh, that was a nice touch. Um, but as we last saw him, he's in very he's in very deep trouble. Um, and Peter Parker, as we've been able to sort of like gather so far, uh, he can't sort of keep up with the fact that everyone knows who he is so he goes to Doctor Strange for help he asks hey can you sort of make sure nobody remembers that Peter Parker is Spider-Man um, but then something goes wrong with the spell and next thing you know uh, everyone's starting to visit Earth 616 which is the Earth that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is set in um, from there we've seen uh, all of the iconic Spider-Man villains but an interesting point in the new trailer that wasn't present in the original teaser, it seems that Peter Parker feels bad for Doc Ock. Um, and Doctor Strange mentions this in the trailer. All of these characters, and this is true, all of these characters' bouts with their own Spider-Man in their universe result in their deaths. Green Goblin was killed in Spider-Man 1. Doc Ock died in a great character moment. Honestly, I love Spider-Man 2. But Doc Ock dies trying to save uh, save the world, pretty much. Um, what else? Electro kind of gets blown to bits in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Uh, the Lizard gets killed in The Amazing Spider-Man 1. Sandman dies. Like, it, you get the point. Um, 
And it looks like Tom Holland's Peter Parker feels bad about this. And he's trying to stop Doctor Strange from what we, we, well, we don't really know what Doctor Strange is doing, but it seems that Doctor Strange's viewpoint is, let's send them back. Like, obviously they have no place on our Earth. Um, and it looks like Spider-Man's like, no, we have to do something. Like, I, I, and I think a large part of this is going to stem from Peter Parker's relationship to Doc Ock. Um, obviously, it's a very uh, complicated relationship in the adaptations we've seen. But at le- in Spider-Man 2, it takes a very, like, mentor-mentee, uh, father figure kind of uh, dynamic. Uh, which makes it so heartbreaking when Doc Ock turns. Um, and in the Spider-Man PS4 games, you have sort of a similar dynamic. Um, and in the comics, bo- in the comic books recently, um, we know that Doc Ock himself. And uh, I don't remember the exact specifics, but basically, Doc Ock inherits a Peter Parker's body but eventually becomes the superior Spider-Man, as he calls himself. He, he becomes uh, a force for good, mm-hmm. at least. Um, so these two characters have such a rich, complex relationship in the comics, video games, and movies. Um, so I see no reason why that isn't going to continue into No Way Home, um, and why that's going to incite a lot of moral conflict for Peter Parker but that's also going to lead to a lot of trouble, I think. Mm-hmm. And we hear him say in the trailer, this is all my fault. So, frankly, I'm just super excited to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't wait for this next month to go by, especially with all of our finals and whatever. But I want to hear what you think. Um, so, one of the points I actually wanted to touch upon was... And, and this is also a conversation topic that I wanted to cover sort of more generally, so I guess I'll transition into that, is um, this idea of, of, connect, of audi- or basically fans' connections to uh, actors in movies and, and sort of, you know, the one thing that, uh, that we can't fight, which is time. Essentially, you know, these actors that we see on the big screen, they're human, just like all of us, they age. And so Doc Ock was Doc Ock in 2004, in 2002 Spider-Man, which was in 2004, which was, you know, almost 20 years ago. Uh, And so it's very interesting, Uh, I guess, so more generally, I guess I'll cover sort of my my questions about sort of how they're going to handle this in the movie, which still haven't, still have yet to be answered. But that's sort of, um, for example, like, Doc Ock, um, you know, Electro, uh, Green Goblin, as we've covered, all of these characters, unfortunately, died in their respective movies. And so it seems, as they've said in the trailer, that these villains were all pulled into the MCU Spider-Man's universe before their deaths, either basically right before their deaths, maybe, you know, a day or two before they were set to die in their universes. And so then, I guess my question is, how are they going to pull these characters like from right before their death, but then also pull Spider-Man from those universes? So I guess my question is, like, are will they pull Spider-Man from I guess the same time periods that they pull these villains from? So they'll basically be the same Spider-Man that we saw in their movies, or will they be more grown-up, um, older versions of these characters? Um, and so I who have had to contend with their actions and the fact that they killed these villains. Yeah, not only that, just also more experiences after their right. bouts with these villains. And um, have they confirmed that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are going to be showing up? Because no. I feel like that's been all but confirmed that, just through yeah. speculation. That is not confirmed, but yeah, it is. People th- highly think it's going to happen. Uh, personally, I think both of us are hoping that it does happen because it would be not only just a really amazing moment overall but just a culmination of basically watching spider-man through our entire lives um but yeah then when when i guess if you 
do pull these Spider-Men from the same time as you pull the villains from, then you have to get into CGI de-aging and, you know, Tobey Maguire, like I said, played Spider-Man 20 years ago now. So, uh, you know, obviously they would probably have to de-age him. And, or are you going to introduce these sort of older, wiser Spider-Men and then you have to sort of, I guess, deal with the plot point of, like, how are these characters from the same universe but at different time points being brought into this universe at the same time it's kind of you know weird it's a little bit to like it's, it's, it's kind of a bit to deal with uh, when covering uh, you know the multiverse but then again you know the multiverse spans space and time so we'll see how they handle it yeah and going on the point of older wiser spider-man and I knew I was gonna have to talk about this at some point but my favorite movie of all time is Into the Spider-Verse. And mm -hmm. I thought they did a phenomenal job with Peter B. Parker. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, uh, I, I, am, I love New Girl. It is one of my comfort TV shows. So getting to hear Nick, um, Jake Johnson, play uh, Peter B. Parker was obviously a treat, especially because Nick... It just acts like a grumpy old man, and that is what Peter Par Peter B. Parker is. And more importantly, a lot of people theorize that Peter B. Parker is very adjacent to Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, um, because we see in his uh, "Let's do this one last time" scene, there are a lot of similarities between um, scenes in the Tobey Maguire movies mm -hmm. and. Uh, and the p scenes that we see Peter B. Parker, like the iconic upside-down kiss, the car being thrown through the cafe, like, et cetera, et cetera. So if this is not, if this isn't Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, it's at, at least a very similar adjacent Spider-Man mm -hmm. in the multiverse. Um, so we have already seen a big screen take of that older, more experienced, more jaded, cynical, grizzled Spider-Man. Um, and first of all, it would be lovely to see like a similar character on the screen in No Way Home, but I do feel like they would have to approach it differently because um, a lot of Peter B. Parker with uh, Jake Johnson being a comedian and you know the movie being animated and taking on at least a little lighter tone mm -hmm. when it came to those scenes a lot of it was sort of played for laughs um like you know him like sort of getting a gut getting out of shape you know like aging in that respect uh i feel like uh they're gonna have to handle it differently not just because uh we've already like not just because you know Tobey Maguire and Jake Johnson are different actors and have different styles, but we've also seen a take of an older Spider-Man already. So to avoid retreading the same steps that Sony has already done, they're going to have to do something different. Yeah. So then, I guess this sort of... So I guess, like, like I said earlier, that I wanted to, I guess, approach this from a more general sense is how will cinematic universes handle ag aging actors? Um, as we saw... Uh, aging actors, not only aging actors, but also just changing actors. Um, like we saw in Endgame, I'm pretty sure it's been long enough, but Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man uh, died in the final battle. And so sort of now, now these Marvel Cinematic Universe is missing an Iron Man, essentially. And that's something that the comics have never had to struggle with because they can always sort of find a way to just bring a character back. It's, you know, it's... It's... Um, it's a comic book. It's, it's fiction. a trope. Yeah, it's, it's a trope in, in comic books at this point where a character dies and characters never really stay dead. They always mm -hmm. come back. Um, in cinematic universes, it's not that similar. Unfortunately, uh, characters, you know, like I said earlier, age. People age. Actors age. And so you would either have to, A, like kill a character off and just not be able to use that character again, or B, change the actor for a character. And I feel like um, in the society we live in, we sort of get attached really easily to these characters, to these actors, to these portrayals. I mean, Robert Downey Jr.'s casting for Iron Man was, 
Like, Perfect. I can't think of anybody else who could have possibly played the part. Um, and I feel like that's that's a really that's a really crucial thing because now we sort of get it so attached to these these characters and these representations of them that the idea of having an actor replace them, you know, having them cast someone new for the role seems kind of like a disservice to the character and it just seems like um, sort of a backstab to the fans. Um, and so I, I, I find it really, I, it's something I think about basically every time after I watch a Marvel movie, which is like, wh- how, like where are they gonna go and how are they going to develop all of these characters um, sort of taking into account the idea that these actors are gonna age they're bound to contracts and eventually they're going to stop playing the role. Um, and then on top of that, just sort of how can you implement stories? Like, impor- like as we know, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is based off of the Marvel comics. How are you going to implement stories um, such as Jonathan, Hick- Jonathan Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers, which is one of the greatest comic book stories ever written? How are you going to implement these stories without characters such as Iron Man and Thanos now that they're already dead in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, you know, it kind of seems like you can't, and so, you know, we're kind of left unsure of where they're going to go uh, from here on out. Yeah, and definitely year. going off that point of getting really attached, I've heard that um, there's sort of a ongoing petition right now to recast uh, T'Challa, the Black Panther, in the Marvel movies, especially after... Uh, Chadwick Boseman's tragic passing away um, and I personally am so strongly against it not just because for all the reasons you already mentioned but especially because uh, it, at least to me Chadwick Boseman was just like iconic in the role and it would be an incredible disservice to the fans and to him to recast anyone else in that role and um it's also going to be interesting to see how the MCU handles that, given that um, so obviously someone has to step up to the moniker of the Black Panther, as it's happened in the comics. And in the comics, it's been Shuri. But, uh, you know, it, there have been sort of controversy, controversy surrounding Letitia Wright um, stepping up to uh, the role of Black Panther. I'm not going to get into it. Um, and so it seems like another uh, another potential character to step into the role is uh, M'Baku, who we've already seen um, sort of challenging uh, T'Challa for the role. Uh, we've already seen him as a competent leader. Um, and he even showed up in Endgame. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. But I think you're absolutely right about sort of um how many times can these people keep suiting up i remember this was already a question uh i was reading an article way back when in like 2014 about uh andrew garfield's spider-man how many times can can the guy keep suiting up Mm -hmm. um and they're absolutely right and i think we got very lucky that tom holland was very young when he took on the role um because it's definitely more comic book accurate. Uh, I don't remember exactly how old Tobey Maguire was, but he definitely was not a like high schooler yeah. um, when he took on the role. And Tom Holland obviously wasn't either, but I feel like it, he was far more convincing as a high school-aged Peter definitely, Parker. Yeah, um, but he's aged since then. Mm-hmm. I mean... Um, he came into the MCU in 2016. Yeah, I, yeah, years. it's been five years. Um, and yeah, and actually, uh, this week and speaking on this topic, Tom Holland actually a couple of days ago, uh, basically released a statement. Well, obviously, probably in an interview or something like that, saying that if he's still playing Spider-Man at the age of 30, then he thinks he's done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, like, definitely, these actors can't keep playing these characters forever. They have entire careers spanning them. They have. A plethora of different genres that they can sort of uh, be a part of apart from superhero movies and so if we really talk about sort of as we mentioned sort of towards the beginning of this conversation how the MCU movies would release a movie or two a year 
Um, Tom Holland is now 25, and if he doesn't want to be playing Spider-Man by the time he's 30, that gives us five years. And as we talked about before, one to two movies a year. He basically gets a movie every two years, so within two movies, he'll probably be done. And so that then brings into the question the importance of these TV shows, which sort of fill the gap in between the sort of years in which there isn't a movie for a character. So um, as I've heard, this is obviously a rumor, this is alleged, but the tentative plan for Peter Parker is to release three more movies with uh, three seasons of TV shows in between. So wow, Spider-Man Freshman Year, which mm-hmm. was recently announced for Disney+, Plus, will be the first season of his show. And then we'll get a movie, and then season two of the show, wow. and then a movie, and then season three, okay. and then a final movie. So absolutely. So that's sort of how they, I guess they're going to handle these aging actors, and then they'll probably have to uh, find a replacement for the role, which pro- will likely be Miles Morales. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting thought. Uh, unfortunately, I think our time is coming to a close, but. Uh, you know, I always love talking to you, bro. Yeah, um, I enjoy talking to you, too. And uh, that has been the Out of Pocket Podcast uh, on 101.1 FM, WBRULP, WFOOLP, WVVXLP, Providence. Uh, that's been our time. Thank you and good night. Yeah, thank you and good night. We'll see you next time.